0: Jesus invites you to come to Him if you're weary and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. So that's what the kids are going to be learning today in their class. And that very much relates to our message this morning. So if you're still in the room, would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 86? Psalm 86. Psalm 86. It reads uh, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, you are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry all the day, glad in the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A a band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Do your prayers sound like this one? Do you cry out from a place of desperate need? Are you mindful in your prayers of the character of God? Do you exalt him and his attributes in your prayers? In the midst of whatever trouble or trial that you're going through, can you say that I will thank you with my whole heart? How is your prayer life? Do you pray? Is it consistent, regular, and what is the quality of your prayers? J.C. Ryle, an old theologian, said, A man's state before God may always be measured by his prayers. He said, prayer is to faith what breathing is to the body. It's necessary for life. This is going to be the last fruit that we observe on the healthy Christian's tree. We've been observing the signs of a healthy Christian. A healthy Christian will love others. We started with the attribute of love, and then we moved to the attribute of holiness. A Christian will be holy just as God is holy. A Christian will seek fellowship because we were designed to be in community with one another, not isolated from each other. The Christian will evangelize. The Christian has been reconciled to God and given the gift of a ministry of reconciliation, to be God's ambassadors, to take the gospel to others. A Christian will serve in the church just as Jesus served those who were around him. A Christian will study, not just study, but they will delight and dwell in the Word of God because it's the way of life. It's the way of blessing. Finally, a Christian will be devoted to prayer. A Christian will pray without ceasing as the New Testament commands us. And there's probably more that we can say about a healthy Christian's life. A healthy Christian will be one who is generous. A healthy Christian will submit to authority um, in in society, in the the secular place, and they'll also uh, submit to authority within the church, the authority that God has established in the elders and in the leadership. And maybe there are more attributes that come to mind, but I will guarantee you this. If you apply the ones that we've gone through, if you commit to loving others, being Holy fellowshipping in the church, serving one another, evangelizing, studying your Bibles, and praying, you'll do well. You will do well. You will live a vibrant, healthy, blessed spiritual life if you commit to these things. And so the final installment of our series is prayer. Prayer. Now, this probably sounds familiar because we were just told how to pray when we were uh, in our series through Matthew studying the sermon on the mount in that sermon jesus gives us the lord's prayer he tells us how to pray in our message today i want to show us how to be how to pray it's one thing to be told how to pray but here is an example of how to pray and in his example from so i mean i don't know if we could do better than the lord jesus and his servant david The man after God's own heart. He will teach us how to pray. He'll show us through an example that we have here in Psalm 86. There are two Psalms with the title, A Prayer of David. We heard them both read this morning Psalm 17 in our scripture reading and Psalm 86. Of course, the Psalms are filled with prayers, but these Psalms have the exclusive title of a prayer of David. You'll remember, David is the anointed king of Israel. David went through a lot of trouble. David penned a lot of Psalms, and he was called the man after God's own heart. So let's learn. Let's watch the man after God's own heart give his heart to the Lord in prayer and learn something from it. Learn something that we can apply in our own prayer lives this morning. Well, if your prayer life uh, can be described as dry, inconsistent, needs help, then I want to give you four motivations for prayer from David's psalm here. Four motivations. Four reasons why you should pray. David shows us. And I'm hoping these reasons don't just cause you to ponder and go, huh, those are... Those are convincing, but I hope that these reasons drive you to your knees and that you actually practice these things because it will bring you great joy in the Christian life. Four motivations for prayer for you this morning through this psalm. Point number one, the first reason that you should pray, it's in your outline, you are desperate and dependent. First reason you should pray is that you are desperate and you are dependent dependent. If you read through the psalm, it's like uh, David is developing an argument for God to hear and answer his prayer. And he starts with this line, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Why? Why should God hear? Why should God answer his prayer? He says, for I am poor and needy. In other words, I am without supplies And I cannot supply myself. I'm desperate. I'm desperate. And I don't believe David is only talking about his physical condition here. David is not poor and needy physically. He recognizes, furthermore, a desperate spiritual condition. He is poor and needy in his sins. We all are. The whole human race has fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners And because of that, we're beggars. We're desperate. We are in great need of a Savior. Men and women spend their entire lives trying to fill bottomless pits. As if they're going to the Grand Canyon without a bottom though, and they're throwing over their good deeds. They're throwing over all the pleasures of the world. Anything that they think will make them happy. The problem is, the pit is bottomless. Do you know why? Because sin swallows everything. Sin swallows everything. Sin even makes those good deeds that you do for the recognition of others because you think, you know, this will make me feel better about myself. Sin makes that wrong. It's like a filthy rag before God because the motive was pride and self-pleasure. Sin leaves all of us, no matter your economic status, uh, no matter how big your house is, no matter how successful or prosperous you are in business, Sin makes us desperate, poor and needy. And until you realize this, until you realize you're a spiritual beggar, you are far from God, friend. This is the starting place for a right relationship with God. Recognize He's holy and you're a sinner, desperate and in need of Him. So do you recognize that about yourself? Is that the attitude with which you approach God? Do you approach God like the Pharisee and boasting in your good works, saying, God, I think, you. Know, I'm not like this tax collector, or are you like the tax collector who beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. Do you realize you're desperate, poor and needy in your sins? David continues, he says, preserve my life. Why? Why should God preserve his life? He says, for I am godly. Now, wait a minute. That sounds like David's going from, well, I'm poor and needy in my sins, but look at me, I'm godly. That's not what David is saying here. This word is hasid. It's faithful. It's loyal. David is not boasting his good works here. He's saying, I have been set apart by God. It's because of God that I am a chosen one, a favored one, a holy one. Some of your translations might translate that holy one. And that doesn't mean he's good in his works. That means he's been set apart for God. So he's just recognizing that he is a child of God here. The rest of verse 2. unless you think that David thinks, oh, I can be saved by my works, just read the next line. David uh, is, ha- is a believer of the solas, okay? Faith alone. Because look at the next line. He says, Save your servant, why? Who trusts in you. That's the only way David's going to be saved. is by faith. Trust in Yahweh. You are my God, he says. Be gracious to me, O Lord. And why should he be gracious? For to you do I cry all the day like a lost cub crying for its mother recognizes I'm hopeless, I'm helpless without God. If you want to know what the sinner's prayer looks like, here's a great example. The actual sinner's prayer. Not accept Jesus into your heart, but recognize you need salvation. And you are utterly desperate, wholly dependent upon God to save you, and it is by faith that you are saved. David recognizes this, salvation only ever comes by grace through faith. That is the gospel. He can't save himself. You can't save yourself. All you can do with David is holy trust in him. Help me. Save me. Friend, if you haven't done that up until this point, till today, if you haven't come to a place of desperation, poor and needy, if you haven't recognized that you're a sinner and that you're in need of a great Savior, here's what you need to do today. Holy trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. The only Savior. The only one that can make you right with a holy God. David understands this on this side of Christ's coming. He trusts wholly in the promise of God. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Trust in Christ today. Trust in Him by faith. David continues. He says, Gladden, which is to, make, to satisfy, to make happy the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. I want to point out the meaning of two words here. It's remarkable. Two words that have greater significance than just our English translations show us. First is the word servant. You can also translate that slave. That's what David's saying here. Gladden the soul of your slave. Said also back in verse two. He says, save your slave. Think about this. David's the appointed king of Israel and he bends his knee to someone higher than him. He recognizes despite his robe, his kingdom and the gold leaf throne that he sits on, there's someone higher. There is a greater king, a king of kings, a master. And he recognizes himself as a slave. A slave to Adonai, his Lord. When you see in this psalm, Uh, The word Lord with a big L and then all caps, that is referring to Yahweh, the name of God, Jehovah. But when you see Lord with a big L and then lowercase O-R-D, that is referring to Adonai, the the Hebrew word Adonai, which is Lord, a King. This is the appropriate posture of prayer. We're slaves, servants of Yahweh, servants of Adonai. Now the second word I want to highlight which is so rich in meaning, is the word soul. Do you see that in the text? Verse 4, Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. By the the way, it's the same word used in verse 2 that's translated life. Preserve my life. Same Hebrew word. This word soul is rich in Hebrew. It has a variety of translations. It can be translated neck. Throat, breath, life, and soul. Think about the correlation of those words. Neck, throat, breath, life, soul. Well, it's through the neck and the throat that you have the channel for breath, right? And it's breath that's the sign of life. If you're breathing, you're alive. EMTs know this, doctors, right? We know this. It's interesting, the same word is used back in Genesis chapter 2 when God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and then man became a living being. That word living is the same word here, soul. And obviously when we think about soul, we think about the inner man, the inner life, the part of us that is eternal. So this one word encompasses all of life, your physical breath, To spiritual breath. Your physical life to spiritual life. And so what is David saying here? When he says, preserve my life. I trust in you. Gladden my soul. I lift up my soul to you. It's as if David is saying, God, here's my neck. Take me by the throat. You have my life. All of me. Every aspect of my being. Spiritual and physical. I trust in you alone. Incredible, isn't it? You know, David. Assuming he's running from enemies here, we can see that later in the passage. David had a lot of enemies, men who actually wanted him by the throat, wanted to take his life. But David isn't going to surrender his neck to any man. He will surrender his neck to Yahweh, though. He trusts him. Do you have any, you know, experience with hand-to-hand combat? you know that to give up your neck is a bad move. You're surrendering the fight. That's a KO, a knockout maneuver. You don't want to expose your neck for a chokehold, whatever. But that's what David does to his God, because he wholly trusts him with all of his life. Have you come to that place? Have you recognized that you're essentially a, a poor and needy, man or woman who is in desperate straits because of your sin, and you are utterly dependent for spiritual life and physical life only in God. He's your only hope. And have you come to the point in your life where you have actually placed your neck in his hands and says, you have me. You have me. If you have done so, then you know that that's not a dangerous place to put your neck. That's not a place that. Seals your doom. That's actually the best place. That, that's the most trustworthy person to give your throat. Yahweh. Why? Because God is good. That's point number two. You are desperate and dependent, but the second reason to pray is because God is good. And prayer is this practical trust. It's the sinner reaching up their hand to pull on the shirt tail of the Father. It's you reaching out of the miry pit, clinging to God and God alone. Think about prayerlessness then. If you're prayerless, then what does that indict you of? Pride. Thinking too highly of yourself. Being self-dependent. I don't need God. That's what prayerlessness shows us. But if we recognize our need, we'll visit the throne of grace often. Furthermore, if we recognize God is good, then we'll be at his doorstep all day long. Now the arguments you'll see in the passage transition from David's poor condition to God's wonderful character. Why should God hear and answer the prayers of David? He says in verse 5, look at it, "For you, O Lord, are good, forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you." And David knows his Bible. He knows his Bible. If you're familiar with the Scriptures, you know that this is an abbreviated quote of Exodus 34. When God presents Himself to Moses, He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David is going to repeat this quote later in the psalm. But listen, studying and knowing the attributes of God is not simply an academic exercise. It's not for those of us who like to think and philosophize and and, and dwell and just ponder the reality of God's attributes. The attributes of God are like anchors for your soul in times of trouble and need. These These are things that you need to cling on to because they'll help you. When the rug is pulled out from underneath you, this is the net that catches you. The attributes of God. God is good. He is forgiving. He is abounding in steadfast love. We need this so bad. David needs it, so he recites it. Think about this. God is good, and there's a variety of meaning in that word. Good. It it means to be that he is joyous. He's pleasing. He's desirable. He's lovely. He's a friend. He's just in character and He's precious in value. This is to say that you don't want anybody else next to you in a trial. God is the one you want by your side. Because He will not wrong you. And He will do whatever is for your best. He's the one you want in your foxhole. In your corner. God is good. Do you really believe that? Do you believe and will you recite that God is good even when you lose a loved one? Even when you lose your job, even when rents due and there's no money in the account, is God still good? Yes. Yes, He is. God is good all the time. And you need to remind yourself of that reality, even when times are trouble, or times are tough. God is forgiving. Oh, thank goodness. Because remember, this is your greatest need. You're desperate in your sins. and the fact that God would forgive you, be inclined to forgive you is amazing. Uh, some texts render this is by nature forgiving. Or he is inclined to forgive. That means this. No matter how big your debt is, the heavenly banker stands ready to cancel it. To forgive it. He's not bothered by your baggage. He wants to take it off your hands. And he moves and he's inclined to do that. He doesn't make forgiveness hard to reach or impossible to find. Look no further than the person of Jesus Christ, right? These are promises given to David and Moses long before Christ came and they trusted them. How much more with the full beacon of light exposed to us, right? We we got manifestation of forgiveness at full volume, full brightness. God showed up in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins. By his death, and resurrection were forgiven and made new and given new life we know that god is forgiving we know more so than any generation right before us or before christ god is inclined to forgive first john 1 9 says if we confess our sins he's faithful and he's just to forgive us god is abounding in steadfast love The list keeps building. The argument keeps increasing for why you should trust God with your life. Why you should pray to Him. He's abounding in steadfast love. Abounding means that God doesn't give from a meager supply. He doesn't just have a little bit extra. He's overflowing. The heavenly storehouses are full. And this word for steadfast love is also theologically rich. It's the word hesed, which refers to the faithful. Covenant, loyal love of God. This is love that's anchored in a promise. It's not a love that ebbs and flows. It's not a love that's conditional. It is unconditional and bestowed upon the man and the woman. It's not conditioned upon your achievement, your obedience, or your response. It's an unconditional love despite your condition, desperate condition, despite your disobedience and your rebellion. This is the loyal love of God. The love that the hymn writer writes about, the love that will not let me go. That's this love. He's abounding in it. His storehouses are overflowing with this love. Oh, these are attributes that you need to recite in your prayers. Do you know them? These are This is good, theologically rich, and deep content that needs to fill your prayer life. I hope that your prayers are just not all about you, but that you exalt and praise God for His character, because that will align your heart with His. David says in verses 6 through 7, he says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I call upon you. Why? For you answer me. Oh, this is good news. David is confident that God's going to answer him. David is confident that his prayers will not go unheard, they'll not go unanswered, but God will answer him. Why? Because it's in line with his character. God hasn't proven him wrong before. God hears and he answers. You've probably seen video, pictures, maybe. Maybe you've seen it in person. But the Western Wall in Jerusalem, also known as the Wailing Wall. If you know about it, then you know that there are Jews that gather at that wall and they are crying and they are wailing prayers against this wall. In fact, in the cracks, there are little pieces of paper that they they shove in the cracks of this wall. And those little pieces of paper have prayers on them. And it's as if they shove it in these cracks hoping that the divine presence in this wall, hoping that God will hear it and God will answer. But there's no confidence. Because year after year, day after day, you see the Jews coming up against that wall, praying against it. They do that because they believe it was formerly a part of Herod's temple and it's a sacred site. Listen, I think sometimes you and I pray that way. It's as if we're throwing our meager requests up at the wall of heaven Hoping that just one will sink in, God will hear it, and God will answer. Listen, God is not a wall. He hears the prayers of His people, and He answers them. Psalm 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. When they cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit God answers prayer he does every time now it may not be the answer you were looking for but it is believe this it is the answer for your best and for your good no matter how much it hurts no matter how hard the truth is when he says no do you believe God is good do you believe that his abounding love has not been separated from you that he's not giving you something too hard to bear that He's with you and He'll never forsake you. Do you hold on to those truths? Finally, David says at the end of the section of God being good and great, Psalm 86 verse 8, he says, There is none like you among the gods. O Lord, there are no works like yours. All the nations you've made come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. This is a mighty, mighty declaration of God's absolute sovereign rule over all. There are so many illustrations of this throughout history, but I think one of the best illustrations of this was in the events of the Exodus. In the events of the Exodus, it's what God did to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. You might remember the story. Moses is sent by God to Pharaoh, who, by the way, at the time, was the most powerful king on earth. We're talking the ancient Egyptian empire. So God sends his servant Moses, his stuttering servant, to deliver his people. And he makes the request that Pharaoh would let the people of Yahweh go. And what does Pharaoh say to this request? I'll jog your memory. He says in Exodus 5.2, is Yahweh? That I should obey His voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let His people go. What a statement. Pharaoh, the king of the earth, sets himself in direct opposition to Yahweh, the king of heaven. I don't know you, I have no reason to obey you and I'm not going to. That's what Pharaoh says. And I love this little line in Exodus 6:1. How does God respond to that? He says in Exodus 6:1, Now you will see what I'll do to Pharaoh. Just you watch. I will get glory over Pharaoh. Even if I have to bury him under the Red Sea, he will bow to me. And that's what happens. You have the ten plagues of mass destruction. I mean, one of these plagues would be enough for me to give in. Any mere mortal would would give in, but God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh stubbornly refuses God through all these plagues, and even after the last one, he goes further and he pursues the people of Israel to try to win these people back from God. Why did God allow Pharaoh's heart to harden through this? He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. God is committed to his glory and he will get it even over the greatest, most powerful king on earth. All his hosts, and guess what? God says, I'm going to make sure that the Egyptians know that I am Yahweh. Pharaoh said what? I don't know Yahweh. God says, I'm going to show you who I am and you will know me. In your last breath. And Pharaoh was crushed under the Red Sea. And this is the song that Israel sang after that event. They saw Pharaoh and the Egyptians swept away by the Red Sea. And this is what they sing. Notice how similar it is to what David wrote in Psalm 86. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him, my Father's God. I will exalt Him for who? Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Rhetorical answer, there's no one. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Answer is in Psalm 36, there is no one like you. There is none who do works like yours. This is our God. This is the one that you pray to. This is the one that you come to in your time of great need. In your triumph and in your low times. High times, low times. This is your God. Do you recognize Him as such when you pray? Is your prayer full of rich theology about God? If not, I encourage you to memorize passages like Exodus 34. Memorize passages, portions of this psalm that remind you of who God is. David knows that his allegiance is with the king of kings. No enemy, therefore, is too strong for him. No request is too big for Yahweh. And no hole is too deep. No sin is, causes the sinner to be too far for God's reach. Pray because your God is good. Pray because He's able. Thirdly, pray because you're desperate and dependent. Pray because God is good. Thirdly, pray because prayer is edifying. Prayer is edifying. I see the signs on the freeway. You might have seen them. They say prayer changes things. Have you seen these signs? I, I believe that's true. I believe God works through the faithful prayers of His people and that it's not so much that prayer and the action is, has the power of, you know, changing things. The God behind prayer changes things. Yes, I would affirm that statement, full, full tilt. But I would say the most stubborn force that God changes in prayer is me. Prayer changes me, before anything else. It really does. Because it gets me desperate. It gets me dependent. If I'm praying with rich theology, it it makes me humble. And it is an opportunity for me to preach to myself, to edify myself with truth, to get my heart aligned with God's. Prayer changes me. Prayer changes me, and it changes you too. You'll notice David is preaching to himself in prayer. He's preaching to himself. It's instructive. He's realigning his priorities. It's almost like he's reorganizing the shelves here. And he has two requests. Teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. And unite my heart to fear your name. There's David's two big requests. Hey, Lord, I want to learn from you through this. And I need to be aligned with your will. I need my heart with yours in this. Whatever is going on in my life, I need wisdom and I need a fear of God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And David makes three resolves in this passage. Three resolves. Verse 11, it says, that I may walk in your truth. That really is a, that's a statement, I will walk in your truth. So I will walk in your truth. I will give thanks to you and I will glorify your name forever. Verse 12. Three resolves. Whatever happens to me, Lord, you're saying, I'm going to obey your word, I'm going to give you thanks, and I will glorify your name. Why? Again, for great is your steadfast love towards me. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. No matter how bad your life is going, even right now, any day here is better than a day in Sheol. And if you're in Christ, you've been delivered from Sheol, haven't you? You've been granted eternal life. You are not destined for eternal destruction. God has saved you by grace through faith. And so you have confidence that you're not going to spend eternity in hell, but you're going to spend eternity with God because you have embraced the Savior, Jesus Christ. So guess what? Even if people are trying to kill you, like David... Even if you lost your job, you lost a loved one, even when life is so hard, and it is hard, we'll get to that in a minute, you have every reason to give thanks, do we not? We have every reason to still glorify God in any circumstance, in any situation, because He has earned all the glory. I mean, it's so easy in the midst of a difficult trial to be disobedient to God, to be distrusting to be distant from him, to despair, and to digress. We want to push away when hard things happen. Some of us are inclined to do that. But David doesn't do that. He says, okay, God, I'm listening. Teach me through this difficulty. Help me, help unite my heart to yours so that I understand your will through this and I can still fear you. I need help doing that, Lord. Help me to fear you and honor you. And I'm going to continue to be thankful. I'm going to continue to glorify you even though this is hard. Sometimes you've got to preach that to yourself when you pray, right? Because it's easy for you to digress. Prayer is edifying. It's an opportunity for you to preach to your own heart and instruct your heart. Whether you're in a hole in the ground, you're attacked by enemies, or you're under some physical ailment, you need these preaching points. He's preaching points of David. God, teach me your ways. Unite my heart to yours. I will walk according to truth. I will obey your word. I will continue to be thankful and I will continue to glorify you no matter how bad it gets. Preach those t- truths to yourself. Prayer is edifying. Pray because you're desperate and dependent. Pray because God is good. Pray because prayer is edifying. It's instructive. And pray finally because life is hard. Pray because life is hard, and it is. Life is hard, isn't it? You probably right now are thinking about a specific circumstance in your life that is very difficult. A difficult person, difficult time at work, a difficult time in the home, a difficult season, we call them. Maybe you're going through a significant trial, the loss of a family member, a loved one, still grieving from that. Maybe a lot of uncertainty and confusion because you've lost your job and you don't know where to go. We all hit troubles in life, do we not? Maybe we're not running from enemies like David was. We're not running from the sword. But difficulty comes into our life, and we all run into trouble. David, in verse 14, he tells us, essentially the circumstances that are going on in his life. He says, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life and they do not set you before them. David is oppressed by men who want to kill him. And he calls them insolent and ruthless, which, which means arrogant and violent. This is a motley crew. They're not looking to imprison him. They want to kill him. Now, if you're familiar with the story of David, there are a lot of men in David's life that wanted to kill him. It seems like he was constantly on the run. On the run from Saul, on the run from his own son, Absalom, and the revolt in the kingdom. David, David had a tough life. You know, he was king, but he ran into a lot of trouble. But get this, the trouble that David is in is not his ultimate concern. You know what his concern is? It's in that last little phrase of verse 14 they, the enemies, do not set you before them. David's recognizing something. David recognizes these men don't want to just attack him because he's a difficult personality or because he's annoyed them. These men also not only oppose David, but they stand opposed to God. And David knows if my allegiance is with Yahweh, then that means there's going to be some men that stand against me because there are always men that stand Against God. If the world hates him, then David knows it's because the world hates Yahweh, my God, that I stand in allegiance with. Jesus told us this in John 15. He says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. The slave will not be greater than its master. If the master suffered, then the slave will suffer. I want to tell you something that a lot of preachers will not tell you today. Alliance with God does not save you from trouble. It doesn't. Alliance with God, trusting God, coming to God for salvation, does not free you from life's trouble. It doesn't make your life easier. In fact, it almost promises you that your life will be hard, that you'll run into trouble Because, I mean, outside of the natural disasters, the disease that we all deal with, on top of that, guess what? The world opposes you because it opposed Christ. So you tack on persecution. Now do you want to come to Christ? Do you want to come to salvation? Do you trust God? Or is that going to be too difficult for you? We need to count the cost like, Jesus told us to do. We need to learn from men like David that allegiance with God is not all rainbows and butterflies, but you are opposed by this world and the men and the women of this world for allegiance with Yahweh, for standing with God. Because they don't just hate you, they hate the God that you serve. But let's look at this. I mean, David doesn't just sulk. Oh, woe is me. Oh, fine, God. God. I have to deal with enemies. What does he do? The next verse, he turns his eyes back to Yahweh. He's looking at these insolent, arrogant men who are horrible in character, who want to kill him. They're murderous. Everything that does not represent God, he goes, okay, I need to turn my eyes back to God. Look at verse 15. But you, O Lord, but you, big contrast, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What a contrast to the arrogant, murderous men that want to kill him. David turns to God and says, No, you're merciful and gracious. You're slow to anger. These men are quick to anger. You're slow to anger, God. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What a contrast. Spurgeon writes, We go from proud and puny men to a good and glorious God. And that's where we need to turn our minds and our thoughts to in times of trouble. The best things you could do in your trouble, the best thing you could do when life is hard is not look at yourself, not throw a pity party, not pout and whine. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't even look at your enemy, but look up to God. Look back to your anchors. Remember? The anchors in the wall that hold you? His character, His graciousness, His mercy, His love, His faithfulness. That is what we need to cling to in times of trouble. David is totally dependent upon God to save him. He knows he can't save himself. He says it again in verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your slave. Save the son of your maidservant. His only appeal to God is from the position of a slave, the son of a maidservant. This was just an expression that meant um, that even as a slave, he was still born in the house of God, therefore had the protection of the head. That's what he's referring to. He says in verse 17, show me a sign of your favor. And and David doesn't ask for a sign so that he could trust him. I don't know if you prayed like this when you were a kid. I was a little bit weird, but I prayed this way. I said, God, if you protect me or if you comfort me because I'm scared of the boogeyman in the closet, then you'll have my trust. In fact, God, I want to know that you're true. I want you to prove it to me. So move my Bible from this nightstand To this one, when I'm sleeping and when I wake up, I'll know that you're God and I'll trust you. It's like putting God in a corner. You better do this so that I... No, that's not what David's doing here. Why does David want the sign to be shown? The sign of favor? To protect David's reputation? So David can go, aha, I told you I was right, serving God. No, no, no. He says, show a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see it. And they would be put to shame, not before me, but because of you. Lord, because you have helped me and comforted me. David wants God to get the glory over his enemies. He wants his enemies to see and behold the glory of God. Just like Moses wanted Pharaoh and the Egyptians to see the power and glory of God. That's what David wants. He wants them to behold the God of gods, the God of the universe, the king of kings. He stands with Yahweh. And He wants those who stand opposed to Him and opposed to His God to be put to shame for daring to, having the audacity to stand opposed to God. Listen, life is hard. Life's hard. There will be much opposition if you continue and follow Christ. We're promised that in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire To live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not a promise that a lot of people want to claim. Oh, I claim that promise. That sounds wonderful. No, that's hard. Life is hard. There are many who reject Christ. There are many who oppose God. But know this, you stand faithful with God. You are in allegiance with the King of kings, God of the universe. He will save you in times of trouble. Ultimately, He saves our soul through offering salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. There are so many reasons, especially now, to be a man or a woman of prayer. Maybe we're not facing yet the full heat of persecution, but we're on the cusp of it. It's going to be increasingly difficult to call yourself a Christian and live in the U.S. of A. You'll face... Trial, you'll face trouble, you'll face opposition, you'll face, I mean, many of you are facing being made fun of in the workplace or in the neighborhood for your faith. And that was promised to you. How much more reason then for you and I to get on our knees and pray? Trust God. Remind ourselves of these truths that David reminds himself of. So, four reasons to pray. You're absolutely desperate and utterly dependent, God is good. Prayer is edifying. It's an opportunity to teach your heart, to line it up with His. And pray because life is difficult. Life is difficult. And so you have a lifeline. You have a lifeline in prayer. An opportunity to enter the throne room of heaven and express your worries, your doubts, your sorrows, and trust a God who cares for you. If you've never come to him in desperate and dependent fashion, if you don't know his grace, forgiveness, his compassion, his steadfast love, if your biggest concern in life is just difficult people, circumstances, or situations, then you're missing it. Turn to God today for salvation through Jesus Christ. Bow the knee today in a prayer of faith, recognize your desperate need, and give God your neck. He's trustworthy. He's proven himself. His grace, his abundant love, and his inclination to forgiveness is manifest at full throttle, with full volume, and great brightness in the person of Jesus Christ. Trust in him today. And if you have any questions about the gospel or want to talk with somebody about what it means to be a Christian, how you can become a Christian today, come talk to us. Talk to the person who invited you, come talk to me. And I would love to help you understand what it means to follow Christ with your life, and to have the salvation that David describes in his prayer, deliverance from Sheol. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that these reasons revealed in the prayer of David would drive us to our knees, that we would be men and women of faith who pray often. God, as we breathe, and that gives life to our bodies, I pray that we would pray so that we give life, faith to our souls. We desperately need you. You are good. Prayer is an opportunity for us to teach and edify our souls, and, and life is hard. Those reasons alone should drive us to pray every day, multiple times a day. And there are so many more reasons. God, I pray that each person would just leave today having the resolve of David to walk according to the word, to thank you at all times, and to glorify you with all their lives. Help us to be men and women who pray. In Jesus' name, amen.